So the Gospel of Mark in chapter 1 is where we are going to be, the Gospel of Mark in chapter 1. As the weeks pass, we're going to take some larger chunks of information, some larger numbers of verses to consider, but today we are going to just unpack and expand just three verses in Mark chapter 1, uh, verses 9 through 11. These verses are, are critical to understand and to know the background of what they represent. And this event is actually recorded in all four Gospels. It's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So the Holy Spirit certainly wanted us, or wanted to emphasize to us, this essential element in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Mark chapter 1. Before we read the verse, let me just give you by way of introduction these thoughts. Some years ago, someone approached me to ask about using our church facility for a particular event, and I politely turned them down. Uh, a number of months later, we were at a different church for a counseling teaching event, and we ended up sitting at a table with someone who knew of this situation. Uh, you know how that goes, someone who knew someone who knew someone who knew someone. And, and uh, this person asked me about my refusal to let this guy use the church building for this, and he, he basically said, what's the big deal? It's just a building. Now, I honestly don't remember my exact response from many years ago, but as I later thought about the situation and how I might express a response to that thought, it's just a building, I would say this, yes and no. Yes, it's just a building composed of lumber, sheet, rock, steel, and concrete. But no, it's not just a building because it represents something. It represents a testimony in a community. It represents the group testimony of a fellowship of believers in Jesus in a particular area. It represents uh, what God is doing in a particular place. It represents what we think of God and what we think of our fellowship of believers. And so, no, it's not the Old Testament tabernacle. It's not the Old Testament temple where the presence of God was visibly represented. But the facility where the Lord's people meet is more than just a conglomeration of lumber and sheetrock and steel. It, it represents the testimony of the Lord in that locality. Now, one might look at my wedding ring and say, ah, it's, it's just a ring. And I would say, well, yeah, but, it, but it, it represents something. That's why married people wear them. It's a, it, it's a meaningful symbol. That's why ladies like those little sparkly rocks on their rings. It's a, it's, it's a meaningful symbol. It represents something. We have things like that all over our lives. A number of years ago, uh, Nathan, when he was living over at the group home there in Kalispell for Father's Day, he gave me this. It says, uh, number one dad loved Nathan 2005. So it's been, a, it's been a few years ago. Now you might look at that and say, you know, it, it just, it's just a piece of PVC with a baseball glued to it. That is correct. But it represents something to me. And so this will never be just a piece of PVC with a baseball glued to it. Because it represents something. Last Christmas, Nathan gave his mother a, a, uh, a, a painted rock for Christmas with a little snowman on it. You might look at that and say, ah, it's, it's just a rock. Yeah, it's just a rock. 
but it represents something. And, and so, and I'm not going to keep pounding this exercise, but, but you get what I'm saying, I hope. There are things in this life, there are things in our spiritual life for the Lord Jesus that are very simple and uncomplicated, yet they are filled with meaning because they represent something. Our church facilities, our homes, our lifestyles, our priorities, even our personal appearance, and they all represent something for the Lord Jesus. And my point today being is this, and I'll say this to you several times through the sermon, testimony matters. That, that's one point I want to drive home in our hearts today. Testimony matters. And the reason why I want to drive home that thought with you is because testimony mattered to our sinless and holy Savior. If it mattered to Him, it should matter to us. And here in this passage we're going to look at here in just a few moments, there's an issue, there's a matter of testimony that the Lord Jesus Christ did publicly uh, because, because it, 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 it mattered. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Now in this New Testament era that we live in, with all of the Old Testament ceremonial laws, and we talk about the ceremonial laws being all the things in the law of Moses that were, that were ceremony-based, ritual-based, because God's moral law never gets abolished. It was wrong to steal, it was wrong to murder, it was wrong to cheat, it's wrong to lie, it was wrong before the law of Moses, it was wrong to do that, and it's still wrong after the law of Moses. So it isn't the moral laws of God that were abolished, but under the New Testament era, the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament were abolished because they were fulfilled in Jesus Christ and by Jesus Christ. And our, so our relationship with our Savior today is not based on rituals and ceremonies. Our salvation, our forgiveness relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is based on our faith in who He was and what He did. Our daily walk with Him and our spiritual growth in Him is based on our obedience to His commands. So Bible-preaching churches such as ours are not, we are not ritual-based, we are not ceremony-based, we are Bible-based, meaning we want to learn it and love it and live it. That's what we're about, to study God's Word so we can learn it and love it and live it. But there are two very simple, uncomplicated ceremonies that the Lord Jesus left us by way of His commands. The first one is baptism. The second one is the Lord's Supper, or we call it communion sometimes. Now the Greek word baptizo means to dip into, to immerse, to submerge. It comes from the Greek word, the root word hapto, to dip. It was used in the secular first century world to describe someone dyeing fabric. They would take the fabric and they would submerge it into the dye. Or they would dip a cup into a pot of water to get a drink. And so that's what the word means. Baptizo means to dip into, to plunge into, to submerge, to immerse. When the early English translators of the Bible began their work, they were connected to churches that did not practice believers' baptism by immersion. So, they, so rather than translate the word immerse or submerge or dip into, which would have gotten them into a lot of hot water, they just transliterated the word, meaning they just switched the Greek letters to English letters and they made a new English word. 
So baptizo became baptized, thus leaving the meaning open to whatever one may, may wish to make it mean. But, but it means to submerge, to dip, to immerse. And the most prestigious Greek scholars of the last several hundred years will tell you that. It does not mean pour or sprinkle, regardless of what some folks may try to tell you today. I'm not trying to bash anyone, I'm just saying that's what the word means. To dip, to submerge, to immerse. Now you may remember from a few weeks ago that John the baptizer, one who baptizes, he was preaching a baptism that represented repentance and forgiveness of sins. Now that may seem very ordinary to us, but to the Jewish people of the first century, that was a revolutionary concept to them, because all they had known was there were ceremonial washings that the Jewish people observed under the law of Moses, but the only people who were actually immersed, who were actually baptized, were Gentiles who wanted to join Judaism, who wanted to become Jewish in their religious faith. They called it proselyte baptism, and a Gentile, a non-Jew, who came to believe that the God of Israel was the true and living God, and they wanted to be part of the Jewish religious life, so, so they would be immersed to symbolize the washing away of the old life and the entering into a new life as a follower of the true and living God. So for John, the baptizer, to come along and preach this message, was very radical because he was telling the Jewish people of his day that they were no more ready for the coming of the Messiah than a Gentile. He was saying that the promised King, the Messiah, the Savior was coming, and if you want to be ready for the coming King and Savior, then you've got to repent of your sin and make a public statement that you have repented by submitting to to a ceremony that for 1,500 years was only reserved for Gentiles. That was a very radical message to a first century Jew. And apparently there were massive groups of people who were coming to hear John going down by the River Jordan. They were, they were, they were listening to, the, uh, to John preach. They, they were being baptized. They were confessing their sins. They were repenting, preparing for the arrival of the Messiah. By the way, that's why John was near the river. He was submerging people. If he wasn't immersing, he could have stood near a well at an oasis and pulled some water up in a bucket. But his entire ministry was next to the Jordan River. There's a completely logical reason for that. So we come to this beautiful event here in Mark chapter 1. Let's just read these three verses. Mark chapter 1. Let me just read verse 9, 10, and 11. Just a very short passage. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan, meaning Jordan River. And immediately, coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus shows up. He comes to John to be baptized. And I want you to notice several things in this passage. Notice he comes, he says, from Nazareth of Galilee. Now that's not striking to us because we know the names of the places and their location on a map. So it seems to be just a very simple statement of fact. But in first century Jewish writings, Nazareth was so obscure, was such a tiny out of the way place, it's not even ever mentioned in any first century Jewish writings. And Galilee 
was looked down upon by all the people in Judea and Jerusalem. You say, why? Because when the kingdom of Israel had divided after King Solomon, the tribal territory of Zebulun and Naphtali went with the northern kingdom. When the Assyrians overran the northern kingdom, a significant number of Gentiles moved into that region, and the area came to be known as Galilee as, as Galilee around there. In fact, in Isaiah 9, it's called Galilee of the Gentiles. So it's quite significant to the first century person with a Jewish background that the Messiah came from an obscure, virtually unknown town in an area known to be dominated by Gentiles that would be very offensive to, to, to the self-righteous Jewish mind. The Messiah can't come from a Gentile-dominated region in some nothingness little town. He's our Messiah. He's not theirs. Why, he should come from Judea, maybe even Jerusalem. He has to be born in Bethlehem, just a few miles from Jerusalem in King David's region. And of course, you know, Jesus was born in Jerusalem. I mean, sorry, in Bethlehem, just outside of Jerusalem. But he grew up in a little, tiny, obscure, out-of-the-way, nothingness town in a Gentile-dominated region. Matthew chapter 4, by the way, directly connects Isaiah 9 to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he talks about the Messiah coming from Gentile, Galilee of the Gentiles. In fact, in John, the Gospel of John in chapter 1, right after John the Baptist looks at the Lord Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's the same instance we're talking about in Mark 1. Jesus came to be baptized by John. And John looks at him coming and he says, according to the Gospel of John, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As soon as John said that, two of John's disciples, one was Andrew, became an, uh, an apostle, two of John's disciples started following Jesus. One was Andrew, who then found his brother, Simon Peter, brought him to Jesus. Then Jesus called Philip to follow him, and Philip found a fellow named Nathaniel. Philip said to Nathaniel, Nathaniel, we found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Great question. Why would Nathaniel say that? Because Nazareth was this tiny little podunk town in the middle of Galilee of the Gentiles. How in the world can the Messiah come from Nazareth? So it's interesting to me that the Holy Spirit directed Mark, writing to Gentiles in Rome, to include this that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee to be baptized by John. Reminds me again of the passage in 1 Corinthians 1 that says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to bring to nothing the things that are mighty. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Absolutely yes, with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there are some people who might look around us today and say the same thing. Can anything good come out of Depuyer? You were supposed to laugh, sorry. <laughs> Thank you, all right. I'm glad you're being very serious about all this. They might say, can anything good come out of Valir? Can anything good come out of Hart Butte? Can anything good come out of Browning? Absolutely, Yes. God, God delights in confounding the wisdom of this world. 
God delights in turning upside down the self-righteousness of men. And so Mark records, in, in those days when, Mark, when, when John the baptizer is preaching, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. And I'm sure anyone who knew the area knew they're saying, you're kidding me. Nazareth, the Galilee of the Gentiles, the Messiah came from there? Yes, he did indeed. Absolutely. Now in Mark's condensed version, he does not record the verbal exchange between Jesus and his cousin John here while they're in the water being baptized. But the Gospel of Matthew does record it. And I want you to see it because it explains some things. So look back at, we'll be back to Mark here in just a second. But look at Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. The first part of the chapter in Matthew 3 deals with John the Baptist and all of his ministry and preaching and so forth and some of his sayings. But then in verse 13, Matthew 3 verse 13, we're going to, we're going to pick up the reading there and go to verse 17. John, or sorry, Matthew 3, 13. Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. Let me pause here for just a second, back to our immersion thought. Jesus came up immediately from the water. He was underwater and he came up. Just, just, just a passing thought there, all right. And behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Remember we've said testimony matters. And what we do represents something. John's baptism represented repentance and confession of sin to be ready to be part of the Messiah's kingdom and to be identified with the Messiah's kingdom. Jesus Christ, of course, was sinless. He was perfectly holy. He had nothing to repent of. So why would he submit to John's baptism? And John knew that. John understood that. That's why he says John tried to prevent him. The, 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 the tense of the verb in verse 14 indicates that this was not just a little 10 second discussion. John was really resisting this. He was really saying, no, 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 no. We said just a moment ago, John the Apostle in his record of the event records John the Baptizer seeing Jesus coming and calling out to the crowd, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now the Lamb of God wants him to baptize him? And John's saying, whoa, 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 no, no, no way. He needs to baptize me, not me baptize him. Now notice Jesus' response to John. By the way, before we read that, this is the only time in the New Testament that we see John the baptizer and the Lord Jesus together. I have a hunch that they saw each other periodically throughout their childhood. 
We have no record of that, but I have a hunch that they did. And I have that hunch for several reasons. Their, their, their mothers were cousins, and so they were part of each other's extended families. And both of them, both John and the Lord Jesus, were raised by devout, godly, dedicated parents who certainly would have gone to Jerusalem for the three annual feasts of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles at every possible opportunity. Every dedicated, godly Jew would try to get to Jerusalem at every possible chance for at least those three feasts. There were seven feasts, but they were, they were required by the law of Moses to do everything possible to get to Jerusalem for, for Passover, for Pentecost, and for Tabernacles. Passover coming up right around our Easter time, Pentecost early June, Tabernacles in the fall. And so I'm sure that, 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 in fact, we have record of Mary and Joseph and Jesus going to uh, going down to Jerusalem for one of the feasts when Jesus was 12. And I'm sure that's not the only time they went. And so probably being that Mary and Elizabeth, their two mothers, were related and they were godly devout parents who would be trying to get to Jerusalem at those opportunities, I have a hunch that they probably connected with each other periodically there. The Gospel of Luke indicates that John was a Nazarite from birth, and he would be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth, so he was going to have a distinctive appearance in life even as a child. If he was a Nazarite from birth, they would, they would never put a razor to his hair, so he'd have no haircut ever. And there were certain things he would not and could not eat. Of course, Jesus was perfect and sinless, so I, I very seriously doubt that the extended family was unaware of these two unique young men, even though they didn't grow up in the same town. In my crazy imagination, I can imagine Mary and Elizabeth meeting in Jerusalem during one of the feast celebrations. Hey, cousin, how are you? Oh, how's everything? Good. Great to see you. Say, say, how is John doing? Well, he's a fine, godly young man. He's a little different temperament. But he's a fine, godly young man. How's Jesus? Well, actually, he's unbelievably perfect. <laughs> you know? As I said to you before, can you imagine raising a kid who never sins? I mean, I mean, really. All of you moms and dads, can you imagine raising a kid who never sins? That was Jesus. Never one time. Did he do anything or say anything or, or, in, in, or in, in any way resist anything his parents asked him to do? He was the absolutely, literally perfect, sinless kid. And John the Baptist, filled with the Holy Spirit from the time he was born, the Bible says, and very unique. He's, he's, he's going to be a prophet. So I think they sort of knew each other growing up. I mean, knew of each other. They weren't around each other a lot. They grew up in different towns. But here, about six months into John's ministry, Jesus shows up at the Jordan to be baptized. And John resists. Hey, wait a minute. I mean, I know who you are, cousin. Yeah. I know your life. I know the story of your birth. And you, and you, 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 you this is a baptism of repentance. You got nothing to repent of. I, you should be baptizing me, not me baptizing you. And so Jesus says this to him in verse 15 of Matthew 3. Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. What do you mean by that? Permit it to be so, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. 
Well, let's come back to our beginning thought. Testimony matters. John had been given this ministry by God to preach repentance and prepare the way for the Messiah to be presented to Israel. There had been no prophetic voice, no prophet preaching to Israel for almost 400 years. Bible students call them the 400 silent years between Malachi and Matthew. There was no prophetic voice. And then all of a sudden, here comes John, who looks like a prophet, and dresses like a prophet, and lives like a prophet, and preaches like a prophet. He has this powerful message for spiritually hungry people. Repent, because the Messiah is about to appear, and you better get your act together, or there is going to be nothing but the wrath of God for you. Multitudes, probably thousands of people, were responding to John's message from God. Wow, the first prophet in 400 years. And he says the kingdom's coming. We better get ready. All the Old Testament promises are about to be fulfilled. And so Jesus says to John, I need to fulfill all righteousness. I need to identify with the kingdom because I am the king. I need to identify with these repenting sinners because I'm going to be dying for them in about three years. I'm going to take their place under the judgment of God. They don't know it yet, but I know it. God commanded you to perform this ministry. John, John chapter 1 says God, God commanded him to do this. And, and, and Jesus says, I must publicly be a part of this. Testimony matters. What people see matters. This represents something, and I need to identify with it. I, I firmly believe this is what Jesus meant, and John immediately agrees to baptize him. Something else happens. Look back at Mark chapter 1. Not only are they fulfilling all righteousness by Jesus identifying with that kingdom message, but something else happens. Back to Mark 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record this. As Jesus is coming up out of the water, notice verse 10, immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. As Jesus is coming up from the water, the heavens open, the spirit of God comes down gently upon the Lord Jesus like, like a dove does not necessarily mean that the, the, the shape of the spirit was shaped like a dove, although that's possible, but that the spirit landed on him, landed on him like a dove would land very gently. And, and this voice booms out of heaven. John heard it. We presume other people present there may have also heard what he said. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And I believe we have here the ultimate presentation of the Lord Jesus to the people as the Son of God. And all three members of the Trinity are there, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Savior of the world was being presented to all who were there, God expressing to the eyes and the ears who Jesus was. They see the baptism, they see the Holy Spirit descend, they hear the voice of the Father. Jesus first this is Jesus' first public appearance as the Messiah, identifying with the kingdom of God, identifying with sinners needing redemption, affirmed as God the Son by the Holy Spirit and the Father, now ready to begin His ministry. And may we add one more thing. I didn't hear a yes, but thank you, I'm going to anyway. 
Notice what the father said. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God set a powerful and essential pattern for fathers and for all of us in our relationships. Two words, affection and approval. Two incredibly powerful motivators. This is my beloved son, affection, in whom I am well pleased, approval. Two incredibly powerful motivators and two very deep desires of the human heart. You know, so many of our young people today, we just prayed for them a few moments ago, so many of our young people today have totally screwed up their lives looking for affection and approval in all the wrong places. They are chasing affection and approval in the world of drugs and alcohol and sex. They, they never heard affection and approval from their fathers or other influential adults, influential adults in their lives. So they seek it from their peers in circles of sin. And they come up empty every single time. And they've ended up in many cases ruining their lives. Now when it comes to affection and approval, I'm, I'm not saying that sin is okay. I'm not saying that we should approve of sinful behavior. We should not. And I know that Jesus was perfect and sinless, so it's pretty easy for God the Father to love and approve of Him. But I've always found it interesting that when God the Father publicly affirms who Jesus is, He uses words of affection and approval. He could have said... This is my son who's come down from heaven for all of you. Or something like that. But he uses relationship words of affection and approval. There are many, many young people who have never experienced a sense of affection and approval from those who raised them. There are many older folks who still carry some negative baggage in their relationships because they never received affection and approval from their parents or guardians or mentors or role models, and they have never learned how to give it. Affection and approval are some of the deepest desires of our hearts. And praise God, they can be found abundantly through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you know Him? If you do, are you walking with Him? Are you representing Him the way that you should be? Testimony matters. And if we know the Lord Jesus as our Savior, 2 Corinthians 5 says we are ambassadors for Christ. The way we represent Him matters. Our testimony matters. May God help us to walk a straight path for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, such tremendous theological teaching here in these few short little verses. We think of the Lord Jesus Christ coming from a little obscure, know-nothing, podunk town in the middle of, in the middle of Galilee of the Gentiles. We know, Lord, you can take anybody from any place. And you can do remarkable things with them. 
No one's background or upbringing ever bars them from Christ or bars them from being used by God. And Lord, in this matter of our testimony and what we do representing Jesus, Lord, help us to be what we ought to be. May we learn to show affection and approval to our children and grandchildren. May we point them to the Lord Jesus Christ who offers his affection and approval to those who will trust him. Lord, I am sure that even with our group here today, there are people who look back at their life and maybe they didn't sense much affection and approval from whoever raised them. Maybe there are some wounds and some scars that they carry of uh, uh, some different issues that are still hurtful to them. Maybe, Lord, we've never, uh, many of us perhaps never learned to show affection and approval. And yet those are so, so critical in our relationship, not only with you, but with each other. Thank you, our Father, for that wonderful pattern that you showed us at the baptism of the Lord Jesus. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. May we, Lord, be people of grace and mercy to one another. May we reflect the Lord Jesus Christ and represent him because we know our testimony matters. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.